Good to see everyone. What a joy to have spent this year together in God's work. And we did it. We covered the entire book of Mark. Yay! How many had never studied the whole book of Mark before? I mean, most of us teachers hadn't. So that was fun. And how great to see what God had to tell us. Exciting. We started with Jesus being baptized. We finished with his resurrection. And the love of God rested on Jesus from the beginning until the end. And we saw that at his baptism. When he came up out of the water and the heavens parted and God's voice dropped down. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then we end today with Jesus ascending into the sky. Heavens parting again. And Jesus lifted by the great love of God to sit with him at his right hand. He completed the work of salvation God sent him to do, and God loved him through it all. But last week, we left Jesus on the cross, which wasn't real fun to do. And what if that really was the end of Jesus? I can tell you one thing. None of us would be here right now. None of us would know each other. There'd be no fellowship. There would be no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There would be no purpose, and there would be no hope, because we would still be lost in our sins. And if we allow ourselves just to try to get a glimpse of what that would feel like, can you maybe understand a little bit of what the disciples were feeling? This was a horrible, devastating time in their life. What they didn't know was that God was about to assign them to the best job in the world. I've had a lot of strange jobs in my life. Probably my strangest job was my best job. I was the uh, custodian of the community center in my little town of South Holland. South Holland, Illinois. Now, I got this job. I remember not how. And... They never knew who I was. I never saw any of them. In their mind, I was a man. (laughs) And in their mind, I was a man who knew how to clean a community center. I was a 16-year-old teenage girl. And it was so cool because I would just decide when I wanted to go. Somehow I got a key to the place. Don't remember how. And I would, of course, go at like 11 o'clock at night, you know, before I went to bed or Whenever, go down to the community center, and the policemen and the firemen would use this building. And it was this giant tile floor, and there'd be cigarette and cigar butts and beer cans smashed and trash everywhere. And they would leave me a note, and I would do what they said. And I would just pick up and clean. And I, the only thing I do remember really well about that job was the week I went, and they left a note that said, please wax the floors. What does a 16-year-old girl know about waxing the floors? I can remember sitting on the tile floor with this big bucket of wax, reading, reading, (laughs) reading. I'm sure the floor looked horrible. Their feet probably stuck to it the next day. Uh, That was a great job, best job in the world. I worked when I wanted. I didn't really have a boss. Got a check in the mail. That job was in no way the truly best job of the world. I want to look at that today. In these last two chapters, we met people who would have said, I had the best job in the world. And it will be so fun to see what they were. So let's look back at chapter 15. 
We talked last week, Jesus has willed to leave this world. He has breathed his last. He has triumphantly cried out, it is finished. His work of atonement was done. It's only 3 p.m. on a Friday, and yet darkness has engulfed all of the land there around the cross. And this was God sending darkness to engulf the people who had rejected the light of the world. We saw that. The earth has been literally trembling over the death of its creator. We saw how the curtain in the temple was split in two that had separated man from the presence of God. And watching and experiencing all these things was a group of women who we read in Mark were standing at a distance, but we read in John they often were near the cross as well. Who were they? They were women who would have said, we have had the best job in the world. We got to care for the needs of Jesus Christ when he walked on this earth. Best job in the world. Look at verse 40 in chapter 15. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where they laid Jesus. Okay, look on your verse sheet. We can learn a little bit more about these women. Luke 8. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others, these women, were helping to support them out of their own means. We don't want these women... To go unnoticed. These women play an important part in Christ's ministry and in the birth and the stability of the early church. And I love that we get to read about it in the Word. Here's what we can deduce about the women. First of all, it tells us they had received spiritual and physical healing from Jesus Christ themselves. He had played an important ministry in their lives and they loved him. They were women of means, meaning they were wealthy enough, at least some of them, to help supply the needs that you can imagine Jesus traveling with his disciples. They needed food. They needed lodging. They may have needed them to pick up clothing. There were things that these women were able to do for them. And thirdly, we know they followed Jesus from place to place. So these were women who believed in the person And the work of Jesus Christ, they used their resources to meet his material needs. And some theologians say, wow, this would have been scandalous. Wouldn't that have been amazing to know it was scandalous and yet these women continued to do it. They also, by their presence and allegiance to Jesus Christ at the cross, they put their safety in jeopardy by being there. We can see their devotion surpassed the devotion of the 11 disciples, who only John is there. The rest have fled. They were true disciples of Christ. They followed Jesus bravely, and their commitment did not stop as they watched the life leave him 
on the cross and his body become lifeless. They were the last to leave the cross, the first at the tomb, which made them credible witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you and I know, we've read this chapter, that most people didn't want to listen to them. But I can guarantee you this. When the early church started, everybody was asking them. I bet they told this story hundreds of times, and I bet they never got tired of it. What they witnessed, what they saw, being a part of Christ at this time. The thing we need to realize is Jesus brought a worth to women that had never existed before. The early church, it was going to start on God-giving abilities to men, but it was also going to start and be strong from spiritual gifts given to women that were used in the church. Hey, if you doubt that, read the letters of the apostles and look at the very last chapter when they list woman's name after woman's name as being an important part of the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. We got to meet a few of the women here, but you notice it said there were many, so we only are meeting a few. We've heard a lot about Mary Magdalene. She got her name because she came from Magdala, which was a town just on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they always want to tell us Jesus delivered her from seven demons. Now, seven is a number of completeness, which would mean she was completely demon-possessed. What Christ did for Mary was unbelievable. Another woman was named Salome. She was the mother of the disciples, James and John. She was married to Zebedee. Some believe that she is Mary's sister, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, which could have been the case. Then we see Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Yosef. This may have been um, the mother of James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also a disciple. And I guess if you were named Mary, you just hung around Jesus. (laughs) They actually have papers written about the Marys in the New Testament. These great women were there. And before the cross, they would say, we've really got the best job in the whole world. We get to attend to the needs of Jesus. But now at the cross, a man named Joseph appears, and he would say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm about to have the best job in the world because I'm going to be able to care for the body of Jesus as it's taken down from the cross to get to be near Jesus one more time to demonstrate his devotion to Christ would have been such an honor in Joseph's heart because you know that he had been just a secret disciple. Let's look at him in verse 42. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb, cut out a rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Okay, since it was Friday, day before Sabbath, this is a preparation day, 
Sabbath begins 6 p.m. Jesus died at 3 p.m. Not much time to take care of him. If you were Jewish and you touched a dead body during the time of the Sabbath, you were ceremonial unclean. You could not participate in the religious festivities. No work also could be done on the Sabbath. We also read in the Gospels that the Jews remembered and wanted to hold true to Moses' law that said an executed criminal should not remain on a cross overnight. And so they go to the Romans and say, break their legs, get those guys off the cross. Now why would they say break their legs? Because we talked last week what really ends up Um, causing those on a cross to die is they're not able to take breaths anymore. They have to lift their body to get a breath. They have to push with their feet. If their legs are broken, they can't do that anymore. So their death is sped up. When they get to Jesus, he is already dead. They don't have to break his legs. They're shocked by this. This fulfilled that prophecy you read last week in Psalm 22. I can count all my bones. It also fulfilled the obligations of the Passover lamb in Exodus. The people were told by Moses, do not break any of the bones of the lamb. Jesus was that lamb. Remember, we talked about Jesus didn't die on the cross. He voluntarily, he didn't die because of the cross. He voluntarily took his last breath. And that's why it was such a surprise that he would be gone in six hours We talked about the Romans would leave people there between three to six days it took for someone to die on a cross. They often just left them up there for who knows how long unless a relative got bold enough to come and say, can I um, take this body down and bury this body? So here we have Joseph from Arimathea. He's from a town just 20 miles away from Jerusalem. We know he's learned, we know he's wealthy, we know he's a member of the Sanhedrin, and he did not agree to the death of Jesus Christ. He had been a secret disciple, looking for the kingdom of God. That means looking for the reign of God, once again on the earth. And I think he regretted that he had hid his feelings about Jesus, coming to him in the dark, coming to him at night, not speaking up for him when he was around the other Sanhedrin council. So asking for Jesus' body was a belated bravery on Joseph's part. It demonstrates his love for Christ. Here's why it was truly bold. His colleagues, the rest of the Sanhedrin, had already warned that if they found out anyone was a follower of Jesus and they went into the synagogue, they would be permanently expelled from the synagogue. For a man like Joseph, that would have been devastating if that happened to him. Still, he asked for Jesus' body. I thought about how the cross sort of crushed the boastful devotion of the disciples they kind of go into hiding but the cross for joseph ignited his courage and got him uh, strength and boldness i think that way knowing that he was probably at the cross he probably was witnessing christ as he was in the air and jesus said he would draw men to himself because of the cross look at john 12 
Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So Joseph had been waiting for God's reign upon the earth. His actions show that God's reign had come into his heart. No longer afraid of men. He goes and asks for the body of Christ. Openly committed to Jesus. Here's another reason he could have been afraid. He wasn't even related to Jesus. He could have got in trouble by going and asking for his body. And it was unthinkable to ask for the body of someone that they said was a traitor to Rome. And still he goes. He prepares a royal burial for Jesus. We know another secret disciple is with him, Nicodemus, also a member of the Sanhedrin. These are men that John told us about in his gospel. Look on your verse sheet, John 12, 42. Yet at the same time, many even among the Jewish leaders believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. This is no longer true for Joseph and Nicodemus. So here they are. They buy fine linen to wrap Jesus' body. And Nicodemus brings 100 pounds of spices and ointments that they would wrap Jesus and put between uh, their wrappings of his body. They were wealthy. This was a huge extravagance. They could afford it. It really was a picture of their deep love for who Jesus was. Then they would have taken a stone, probably at some point in uh, earlier, Joseph had hewn his own tomb out for future use. And they would have taken a stone after they laid gently Jesus' body in there and rolled it down to go in front of the opening. And you see how it's on an incline? So it wasn't hard to get the stone down in front of the entrance to the tomb. But it would take three or four men to roll it back up the hill to get back into the tomb. This was a burial fit for a king. This was how the kings of Judah were buried. And remember the plaque that hung above Jesus' head on the cross, the king of the Jews. This was a fitting burial for Jesus because he was a king and Joseph knows it. There's something else really important about Joseph's actions here. He's a wealthy, respected Jewish leader. He places Jesus' body in a tomb. He's not one of the 11 disciples. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And yet he's the one who testified to the death of Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders would expect the disciples to come in, steal the body of Jesus, claim that he resurrected. They would expect that from the disciples. But for one of their own to validate that Jesus truly was physically dead. This was an important testimony for the early church. And it's important for us to understand that Jesus had to truly die in order for us to grasp just the miracle of the resurrection. And Joseph was the man God used to verify that. Jesus performing, Joseph performing a royal burial, official confirmed Jesus' death, and this was an important truth in the early preaching of the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 
Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Paul is saying, This is what I received from the apostles. And this is true. And he had to hear the testimonies of the women and Joseph and the disciples for the foundational truths of the early church to get started. And Joseph played an important part in that. And I have to say this. Every once in a while I'll be in the car and I hear some church or some place and and they'll actually mention, you know, the resurrection was not a literal resurrection. And I have to say... Without the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no church. That's the foundation of the church. That's what these people testify to. That's what the church grew on. So best job in the world, caring for Jesus' needs when he was alive. Joseph would say, no, no, best job in the world was taking care and honoring Jesus' body when he died. But you and I know what the best job really is what it always has been since this point, and what it always will be, and that's to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was Joseph's job. It was Mary Magdalene's job. It was the disciples' job. 2,000 years later, it's the church's job. It's you. It's me. It's our job. It's the best job in the world. And I want to tell you this, in order to have a full grasp on what the resurrection, the timing, the places, the people, I gave you a couple sheets to take home. Get a cup of coffee one day. Open your Bible. Read through that. You'll just be so ministered to. And you'll have more uh, truth to tell others when you proclaim about the resurrection of Christ. And the reason is we have to connect all four Gospels to get the whole story because every writer was directed by the Holy Spirit and they all approached um, the crucifixion and resurrection from different points of view. And you want to connect those together to get all the whole story. Okay, look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Here's what I want to tell you here. Everybody from here on out, we're going to meet at the tomb. They provide a job description for us on how to do our job well. The best job in the world. Look at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, They saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. These women that had spent years ministering to Christ, 
years following him, being true disciples, standing at the cross, watching where he's laid, I don't think he ever left their thoughts when they had to leave the cross and go on and get ready for the Sabbath. I think the Sabbath was like torture to them because you're not supposed to work, you're not supposed to do anything. And I think they're thinking, we have got to get to Jesus. And that's why when you see, as soon as the Sabbath ended, this would have been um, on a Saturday night at sunset, they went out and bought their spices so they could go first thing in the morning, take the two-mile walk to the tomb. They leave while it's dark. They get to the tomb. And I think it's so great because we read that the sun was starting to rise when they get to the tomb. And I thought, this so illustrates the hearts of these women, they're in darkness, they're heavy, they're burdened. As they get there, it's dark. Their hearts feel that way. When they left that tomb, their hearts were bright and radiant with hope, just as the sun would come up while they were there. So they're walking in the cool of the morning. Nowhere in their thoughts was that Jesus had resurrected. What are they worried about? How are we going to move the stone? That giant stone and they're sad about it and we get the picture that they're walking like this and they're talking like this and their eyes are downcast and when they finally look up from a distance the stone is so big they look at each other the stone is gone and I think they picked up their robes and they took off running to the tomb now you and I would think yay the stone is gone we know what that means they're thinking, no, his body is stolen. We'll never see him again. And they take off running to the tomb. Their hearts are grieving. They run into the tomb. There's actually an outer area, and then there's a little inner chamber where there was a stone where they would have laid Jesus' body. They get in the outer area, and there's a man in a white robe, sitting outside the inner area. We know from the other gospel, this is one of two angels that came to announce the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To say the women were alarmed, we think, I'm alarmed, I burned the chicken, I'm alarmed. Alarmed in Greek means terrified out of their minds. Overwhelmingly distressed and they look at this angel guess what the angel has the best job in the world he gets to tell them Jesus is gone he says you're looking for a dead crucified man from Nazareth and I tell you he's not here he's risen literally he says he was raised, which lets us know someone had to raise him. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So they have the angel's message of resurrection and the empty tomb to confirm it. And when we see what the angel does next, we realize he has something to teach us. 
when we want to share with others about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These women are scared out of their minds, and the angel does everything he can to calm their fears. And we can learn from that. He first speaks kind, gentle words to them. He acknowledges respectfully their fears and their concerns. He gives them concrete evidence that he is no longer there. He takes them into the inner chamber. He shows them a cold stone slab, and Jesus is not on it. His clothing is on it, his burial clothing, but not Christ. And then he presents a blessed future for these women. You will see Jesus again. How exciting for them. And I thought, this is what we need to do. When we want to share Christ with others, we have to be sensitive to the fears of the unbeliever. So we use kind words. We're intentionally kind. We acknowledge their fears. We think about that intentionally. We give them concrete evidence. It's called the Bible. We present a blessed future about what it would be like to live life with Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus Christ. I don't know if any of you have ever been in big cities and sometimes there's a group of people that get together and they think, you know, we're going to proclaim the resurrection. We're going to... And they run around to people and they say things like, you're going to hell. Repent or it's the end for you. You will be judged. Now, do you want to know Jesus when those kind of people run after you? I mean, people are like running for their lives to get away. That's not the way to share Christ. It's kindness. It's compassion. It's offering hope. That's what touches the hearts of the lost. There's this wonderful story Shelley has told me. There's a woman that comes to our church. She came from China. She was um, a Chinese student. She had the opportunity to come to college in America. So she goes to TCU. And she said it was the strangest thing. Everywhere she went, people were so nice to her. If she needed a ride, they would give her one. If she needed dinner, they would give her one. If she had to go get groceries, they would take her. And she would keep saying to them every time, why are you doing this for me? Why? She said, I had never been loved like that in my whole life. And these were total strangers. They were all Christians. And they just loved on her, loved on her. And then her roommate shared the gospel with her. And she said, you know what? I want to know your God so I can love people like you've loved me. That's what touches the hearts of people. I love how the angel says next, hey, go tell the good news to the disciples and Peter. Okay, who told this story to Mark to write it down? Peter. <laughs> it's the only gospel where you see they've added on and the disciples and Peter. Obviously, the angel did say this. Why? The grace of Jesus Christ and Peter's life, he knows his heart is hurting. He says, tell the disciples and Peter, he's not out. He's still one of the disciples. He's still going to be used for my kingdom in a mighty way. And when the women told Peter, don't you know his heart just 
leaped for joy. The healing began over him denying Christ those three times. Christ knew what his heart was feeling, so he mentions Peter by name. The angel reminds them, Jesus promised to reunite with all of you in Galilee, so you're going to see a resurrection appearance. And all of this information, I'm still envisioning the women in there like this. They've dropped their ointments. They've dropped whatever else they brought. They are totally overwhelmed with this. They're unsuspecting. And even though God chose these women to be the first people to hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ for a while, their fears kept them from doing their job of proclaiming it. And that's hard for us to believe. Why would they want to keep this experience to themselves? But I think it illustrates a really important truth for us when it comes to sharing our experience with Jesus. Here's the truth. Mary Magdalene would soon see Jesus, touch him, talk with him. The disciples would touch him, talk with him. At this point, these women didn't see Jesus. They didn't have a deeper experience with Jesus here. It was limited, and so they were afraid to share. And this tells us something about sharing our faith. We have to deepen our relationship with Jesus Christ to lessen our fears about witnessing about him to others. The more we know about him, the bolder we're going to be to share the news with other people. If we're not experiencing him in the word and prayer and fellowship, we will be afraid to say much. Deepen your experience with Jesus and you will grow and deepen your desire and you'll have more knowledge to share him with other people. Later, these same women did experience Jesus. They were thrilled to tell their story. And it just reminds us, have a growing relationship to find the courage to lead others to Christ. Okay, I have to mention this after verse 8. Lots of theologians believe that um, Mark did not write the rest of this chapter. They believe either he was stopped for some reason, abruptly stopped, or they think maybe the scroll was lost or torn because it would be too abrupt an ending, telling the story of the resurrection. But they can tell from the way it's written that Mark didn't do it. But what most theologians also believe is the early church accepted these rest of these verses because they were accurate. They did tie in with what we know to be true about the resurrection. So the rest of this chapter is to tell the rest of the, re the, rest of the resurrection story. So let's look at verse 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Okay, very first person. See, there is in Christ, Mary Magdalene. We think that she had been with the women when they originally went. Then the women were terrified and ran. She ran and got Peter and John. They ran, looked in the empty tomb. They left. Mary came back. Mary cannot leave. She loved Jesus. She had to see Jesus again. And we read in John, she stands outside the doors weeping. When Jesus appears near the tomb, she thinks it's a gardener. And I think it's so interesting. She says, tell me where you put him and I will go and get him. Where is she going to go get him? Is she going to carry him? Where is she going to take him? 
She didn't care. She wouldn't think it straight. She's just like, I have to see him. Where did you put him? When Jesus says her name, Mary, that's the best way she'd ever heard her name said in her entire life. She knows it's Jesus. We can tell from the Gospels that then, I really believe, she ran to him and held on to him for dear life. Never going to let go of him again. And Jesus says to her, Mary, don't hold on to me. Go and tell. Mary had to realize their relationship was going to function differently now. Jesus was going to go to the Father. She had a job to do to tell the story of Jesus Christ. And that is what she did. So here's what we learn from Mary. Desire that others experience the love of Christ as you have. God never meant for us to hoard his love just for ourselves. He never meant for us to hold on to him so tightly that we were oblivious to the fact that other people need to hear about his love. And I think it's so amazing. Look at verse 10. Who does Mary go to? People that were mourning and weeping that did not know about the resurrected Christ. Hey, guess what? Those people are all around us today. Mourning and weeping because they are lost without a Savior. We get to share the story that can change their lives. Just like Jesus changed ours. You know, when I first came to Christ, and I was selfish, uh, holding on to that, thinking this is so fun, and I love this. I was 14 or 15 years old, and I went through my high school years thinking, I just love what Jesus does for me, just so fun, And, and here's my family. And why is it that it's the hardest sometimes for us to share with the relatives we're closest to? But God began to put Some conviction in my heart. Yeah, isn't this good for you? What about your mom and dad? They don't know it. And I began to take notice of that. Began to share, get rejected, began to share, get rejected. Got older, got older. They'd listen a little more. And the best, one of the best days of my life was just about five years ago. I was visiting them. They live here just in the winter by Marble Falls visiting them, and once again we brought it up, and they were in a car trapped with me. (laughs) And we were on a freeway, and I thought, why didn't I think of this before? (laughs) This is perfect. And my mom made a spiritual comment, so it was a great opener. And I could say to them, do you believe that Christ bore your sins on the cross? Yes, my dad said. And my mom said, yes. I said, have you told him? And my dad said, yes. And my mom said, yes. And I almost had a car wreck. (laughs) Greatest moment. To get to share what Jesus has done for you and see it happen in somebody else's life. Best job in the world. Okay. I can't see my notes to go on. Let's look at verse 12. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. 
You read the story of the two men going to Emmaus. It's one of my favorite stories. They're walking away from Jerusalem. They are so sad about the crucifixion of Christ. It tells us they walked. They're also downcast. Their eyes are down. Jesus begins to walk with them. They can't believe he doesn't know what just happened in Jerusalem. They're telling him the story. And then Jesus begins to open their mind to all the prophecies about the Messiah from the Psalms, from the prophets, from Moses. And their hearts begin to have hope and they begin to feel lifted. And then as they go to eat a meal and Jesus breaks bread in front of them, their eyes are open and they recognize him and then he's gone. And I love this part. They have just walked seven miles from Jerusalem to May. They just jump up and run out the door. They feel this strong urgency to tell everyone back in Jerusalem and they just head on back to Jerusalem. If we want to be available to tell the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to be willing to change our plans for God's plans. This is not always easy. It's inconvenient. Sometimes it's hard work. Sometimes, uh, as these men found out, our message can be ignored. It doesn't matter. It's our job to tell the story. And we have to be flexible to do that. You know, I I almost sort of hated it when this has been a long time, but years ago when that day planner came out and it had all the hours listed and you thought you were a real loser if you didn't fill in every... You know, where, where was God? Where was being flexible for God in there when a neighbor walks up and says, come over for coffee? Day planner. Can't come. I'm going to go do this. We have to be looking and be flexible and ready to share the gospel with our neighbor, with the person we sit next to at all of our kids' soccer games, with someone that's a co-worker. And they may ask us to do something we don't want to do in the least, but we do it because we are doing the best job in the world. And that takes being willing to lay aside my plans for the plans of God. Verse 14. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world, preach the good news, all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, speak in new tongues, pick up snakes with their hands. When they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. On the evening of the same day as all these events The disciples are eating. They have disbelieved just about everybody who came around the corner to tell them about the empty tomb. He's not happy with their stubborn unbelief. He comes to them, and the disciples needed to learn what it would mean to believe eyewitnesses without seeing Jesus himself. And why would this be important? Because this was how the early church would be built. 
the disciples sharing their story who people who were not eyewitnesses had to believe it even though they didn't see Jesus themselves. And the truth is, this is called faith. This is what Jesus honors. This is you and I. We didn't see Jesus in the flesh. We believe the testimonies and truths of the word of God, and we move forward from there. And guess what? Jesus says, you are blessed. Look at John 20. Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay, Jesus tells the disciples, go out, proclaim my resurrection. Where? All the world. Who? All of creation. In fact, 2 Peter 3, 9. On the cross, Jesus' arms were open wide Peter tells us in 2 Peter that Jesus says, Hey, I desire no man to perish, but for all men to come to repentance. And that's what he tells the disciples here. Those who believe and display their belief through baptism will be saved. Literally, it would say this, the one who believed and was baptized. So we know that baptism isn't a prerequisite for salvation. We also know this by verse 16 because he says those who don't believe will be condemned, not those who are not baptized. We also can look at the thief on the cross. He didn't have time to get baptized. He went to paradise that very day. There will be many signs that would accompany the planting of the church of Jesus Christ. We read about those. Jesus stayed 40 more days out of the graciousness of his heart, after the resurrection, he appeared 10 times in all, once to over 500 people on the mountain at the Sea of Galilee. Then he gathered his followers, he led them to the Mount of Olives, and while they watched, while the disciples watched, Jesus slowly rose and returned to his father. And guess what? He didn't need to do that. Why did he do that? Jesus could come and go whenever he wanted. Why did he do it in this manner? He did it to increase the faith of the disciples. For them to understand, now it's time to start doing the best job in the world. He's going back to the Father. And they wouldn't have to wonder the next day, you think Jesus will appear today? They probably thought that every day for 40 days. Will we see Jesus today? We saw him today. They had to know, okay. Start your job. I'm going to be with the Father. How did they approach this huge commissioning to tell the whole world about the good news of Jesus Christ? How do we approach the best job in the world to tell others about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We partner with Jesus to share the good news. Look at verse 20. I love this, how this ends this book. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his sign by the signs that accompanied it. Confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. This is how the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed the world 2,000 years ago. This is how it's still changing lives today. It is the power of God 
that is within the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. I love this. This is how Paul felt when he would share the gospel. I did not come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We have the best job in the world, because we don't do it alone. Jesus Christ is right there alongside us. Okay, I want to close with this. I want you all to think about the person that shared Christ with you that led you to the Lord. So be thinking. Now, if you can't think of a particular person, you can name a church or, say, Sunday school teacher. Or if you read a book, you can name the author. Or if it was a pastor, say his name. If it was your parents, say their name. Everybody get a name in their head. I'm going to count one, two, three and do this. And I want you all to yell the name out of the person that was doing their job well. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Those were people took their job seriously. Let's do the same thing. Don't you want to be a name? People yell out to say, that's who told me about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, uh, your love for us is so hard for us to understand but we praise you for it. And I ask that in each of our hearts today, the job you've given us, you would just ignite that desire to share our experience with others so that your name would be glorified. We just as a group of women today say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your plan of salvation. Thank you that we heard you calling our name. Thank you that you sent someone to us. Lead us now to the paths that you want us to walk so that we may share this truth with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.